House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren sitting at the controls, and we have a couple of co-hosts sitting in the room, social distanced, of course, across the country. <laughs> um, let's see, John Copenhaver, how you doing? I'm doing well, Al. How are you? I'm delicious as always. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and David North Martino, um, Mrs. Martino, if you're nasty. If you're nasty, that's right. <laughs> yeah, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, so anyway, um, don't forget, everybody, I'll be on HLN. Uh, and, and you'll see me on Very Scary People. And um, I take over for Donnie Wahlberg. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm on the news all day Sunday promoting it. Just so you know. Very good. Yeah. Excellent. So everybody that likes me, great. And everyone that doesn't like me, great, too. Watch. That's right. <laughs> yeah, give me a bad t- title. I'm all into it. Um, now, uh, it's very special. We saw this um, documentary, uh, all of us did, and we've all been talking about it. And so um, we've had our guest on before when he was doing uh, about Lisk or the Long, Long Island serial killer. And, of course, uh, people know him from Cropsey and, and all sorts of things. Um, Josh Zeman, thank you for being here. Hey, how are you guys? Wonderful. Doing well. Yeah, we're, 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 we're fine. We're still alive. Um, well josh i mean it's been a while last time you were on you were talking about the long island serial killer and that sort of uh that was a really really good uh uh, project that you did Mm -hmm. um so from that to this like where what got you interested in son of sam first of all uh well i'm from new york so i've always been interested in son of sam uh i'm from staten island new york and uh you know staten island basically became popular in the late early 1970s with what was called the guinea gangplank the verrazano bridge where everybody came over from queens brooklyn and the bronx to live in staten island and a lot of those people who did were teenagers uh, you know, around the Son of Sam time. So uh, it was, Staten Island was very much in the shadow, if you will, of, um, you know, the, the, the Son of Sam case and that specter that loomed large that had terrified uh, couples hanging out in lover's lanes. Yeah, it was a pretty pretty terrifying time. Now your, your uh, new um, four-part miniseries documentary, which is on Netflix, Mm-hmm. And it's called Sons of Sam, and um, it, it's, it really captured the time, you know, very well. I will say that, like you really, you've really uh, got the time period. Because I mean, those of us who are alive and lived it understand what it felt like to be alive then. Yeah, and that was really an important part. I mean, who doesn't love New York City in the 1970s? I mean, it's disco punk. <laughs> Uh, you know, some great hairstyles and just like overall an amazing time. Uh, it was really important for us to capture that well. Um, you know, you kind of see a lot of the same old, same old footage, but we did like a crazy deep dive into some of the archives of the local news stations, uh, WPIX, uh, Channel 11, Channel 5, Channel 9, and like really went hardcore into their archives. Weirdly enough, all those, you know, these, we're all talking roles of, uh, of film that have not been transferred to video. So we managed to get a lot of those transferred. And unfortunately, a lot of those libraries are now disappearing. They're just throwing stuff away, which is crazy. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because we have so much of it that um, when you throw it away, a lot of the young people um, will have no idea. <laughs> the hairstyles, the accents. I mean, you know, that's yeah. it is funny because, like, you know, looking at the reactions on Twitter, people were like, "Oh my God, these these accents are killing me." And it's like <laughs> people people used to talk like that, believe it or not. And some of the looks are just some of the stashes are amazing. Mm-hmm. A lot of guys from Brooklyn without shirts on, you know, and some big stashes. That's pretty cool. Um, like one of my favorite pieces of footage is this girl with huge glasses going like, we can't make out in cars no more. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
It's it's just fabulous. <laughs> yeah, it was such a you know they had bigger problems back then than they do now. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, nothing like it. Well, you know, it, it, it was an interesting case, and uh, at first it was called the forty-four caliber murders mm-hmm. um, initially, and um, um, so. Why did you go further into it then? I mean, right. okay, so there's an interest. You're there. It's New York. It was a big part of the history of the Right, time. right, right. Well, I was making a movie called Cropsy, which some people might be familiar with, which is a movie I made back 2009, a documentary about some missing kids in my hometown of Staten Island. And while we were like my partner, Barbara Brancaccio, at the time, we were rolling around Staten Island trying to figure out what really happened in this case of this kind of urban legend come true. You know, we called this guy Cropsy, and we thought he was just an urban legend, and then kids started disappearing from Staten Island. Well, as we're going around interviewing all these people, there's all these urban legends about what happened to these children, and one of the legends was that somehow they were connected to a cult, Well, this was the 1980s and Satanic Panic was big. So, okay, you know, but then they were like, no, and this cult is connected to the son of Sam. I was like, what are you talking about? You're, you know, this is David Berkowitz, the guy who was compelled to kill by a dog. And they're like, well, that's like the the press story. The real story is that Berkowitz was involved in a cult and he didn't act alone. I thought it was complete bullshit. And that's when a couple cops kind of sat me down and they're like, no kid, listen to this story. And they said that they had worked on the case and they, they were convinced that Berkowitz didn't act alone and that there was this kind of secret through the NYPD that he was part of a cult. And if I wanted more, I should get this book called The Ultimate Evil, written by a kind of outsider, independent journalist named Maury Terry. Well, I get home, I read the book, and it scares the shit out of me. And it's kind of like... It was kind of like Helter Skelter. I mean, the family. It, 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 it had this like really weird kind of creepy, crawly sense to it. And it was like an opus, this book. This book is like 600 pages long. And it's more than just reading a book. Like you're reading a book and this guy makes – this guy, Maury Terry, makes some unbelievable um, revelations about the Son of Sam case. But you're also like – Watching this Maury Terry author, like, as you're reading it, you can tell this guy's descending down a rabbit hole mm-hmm. into, like, total madness. And I'm like, okay, I want to meet this guy. <laughs> so I went and, and I met him in Yonkers, and I, you know, he was, he's like, oh, I saw Gropsy, you know, let's make a movie about the Son of Sam case. And I was like, mm, I don't know. Like, I don't even know if I believe any of this stuff. Uh, but he was such a compelling and interesting character you know, he was like a unreliable narrator and a, and a mentor all in one. And, 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 you know, he started telling me about this stuff and I started to speak to all these cops and I started doing this work. And that's when I realized like there was something there, like this guy was partly on the money. Yeah. But okay. So when we look at, at Maury, Maury Terry, Terry, um, What's your opinion of him? But as, as, <laughs> and, and I don't mean that you know, like you know, he's he's this or he's that. Yeah, I just yeah, yeah. I mean more as a like if he was a witness for you, like if you were a cop and and he was your witness and you were talking to him, how would you rate um, what you could believe? Hmm. Uh, seven out of ten. You know, and, yeah. and that's the whole thing. The whole thing is like, what do you believe? You know, like, here's a guy who was making these crazy allegations. They didn't seem like they made sense. But then I would speak to a cop and they'd be like, nope, that checks out, you know. And then some other be like, no, no, that's real. Here's what I think happened. Maury Terry from Yonkers, you know, an outsider, and the, the idea is that David Berkowitz is arrested in Yonkers. So he has this in that nobody else has, which is Yonkers. Uh, and he starts to investigate. And I had found out that there had, uh, there had numerous times throughout these 13 months, there had been cops who were like, mm, maybe it is more than one person, right? right. And so there's, a, there's like the, there's a fertile ground for there to be more people and people were considering it. And, he does this unbelievable investigation and realizes that no, you know, it wasn't it wasn't an open and shut case. And there were 
probably other people involved. And of this, I am convinced. You know, the, the, the evidence is overwhelming. You don't really get a lot of that, like, hardcore evidence in the series because it's just too, 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 you know, inside baseball. But there's a lot of great evidence to suggest that he didn't do it. So he goes public with this information, and the police call him a crackpot. And I think, you know, because they were defending, you know, what they were doing, and, you know, that was about politics. And the police call him a crackpot, and I think he doubles down. You know, I think he doubles down and starts to go down the rabbit hole and, and kind of can't get back out, you know. Uh, does that make sense? You know? Yeah, yeah. It just it, – it, it, it's sort of um... – I, you know, he he sort of acted like a crackpot a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Towards the end, he got he got crackpotty. I mean, look, you know, if you're conspiratorially minded, number one, you can go there, right? And I think we're all unconspiratorially minded in some respects. But I also have like friends and family and editors and and producers who like pull me back. And I don't know if he had anybody pulling him back. And you know, I also didn't have a quote-unquote axe to grind because the police weren't calling me crazy, you know? Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think he – and there was a couple of other things that happened. I mean, police are calling him crazy. He th- imagine having the keys to unlocking one of the greatest crimes in all of history and nobody will believe you. That would make you nuts. That would make you crazy. And – if people call you crazies, then start, you start to go down the rabbit hole, you know, a little bit. And at the same time, satanic panic happened. You know, he's got this idea that there's, you know, Berkowitz isn't acting alone. And there is some satanic, like, connections to it or some coloring of the case. And then at the same time, you know, this wave of satanic panic is rolling across the country where, where all these other people are saying, like, look, no, 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 there are satanic networks. So he's inclined to believe them or at least kind of jump on their bandwagon, if you will, you know, so that people will listen to his case. Yeah. But I think that backfired because he, he, oh, totally. on, I mean, he was on the, you know, Morton Jr. You know, and come on and, and Geraldo and all that. He didn't, you didn't see him on anything um, that wasn't toting this uh, satanic panic like every day, you know, it was all like, oh my God, you know, your babysitter eats babies or, you know, it's, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's just, so I think he got lumped in with that. So I don't think it, I, I don't know if it was the right thing for him to do. Oh, not at all. He made a deal with the devil <laughs> in yeah. some respects. He made a deal with the devil and like sold his story there because the mainstream media wouldn't wouldn't accept it. And that's because the politicians and the police told them, you know, we're like, oh, that's bullshit. But there was also something else that happened. And this is what we try and cover in the documentary. The Son of Sam case was unbelievable because it was the first time there was a tabloid war in New York City, right? And Murdoch had just come in and bought the New York Post. And suddenly, right as he buys the New York Post, the Son of Sam hits. And it's like fucking godsend. Right. Suddenly, he, Bur- Murdoch realizes there's one thing better than sex that sells. That's fear. And he goes all in and it's him against, you know, Jimmy Breslin. And you can see how Murdoch uses that fear. And then literally in, in the years right after the son of Sam, like a current affair uh, and inside edition, like those come out right on the tail end of, of this whole thing. So the son of Sam is like this, this cult, it's like the OJ of its time, you know, and it's, and it's used and it's especially used by Murdoch and his tabloid journalism, you know? And so they wanted as much of, of the son of Sam as they could get. And when Maury, you know, did his thing, they, they played into it. They bought into it. And, and Maury, like I said, made a deal with the devil, screwed himself. At the risk of, uh, Going into uh, that inside baseball I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, could could do you have any uh, evidence that you could go over that uh, Berkowitz didn't act alone? Sure, sure. And so first, let's talk about. There's a couple things that happened. Number one, uh, one of the things that people were looking for around the the time of these crimes, people were looking for a yellow VW that. 
and, and it was in all the newspapers and it was in all the press. And suddenly Berkowitz gets caught and there is no, there's no more yellow VW. So this yellow VW that had been seen by numerous people around suddenly disappears. Well, they eventually find out that the cars are connected to a yellow VW. Number two, the sketches. Now, we all know that eyewitness sketch, sketches uh, are fairly, un, you know, they're not very, um, you can't put a lot of weight into them, you know. But, but in this case, there's a couple of instances. Number one, the sheer number of different people who, have, who, who sketch different people other than Berkowitz. Like it's, there's like very different. And as the guy says, like, you're not going to mistake this guy for being blonde and six, five. And, and that's, that's what a lot of the, that's what a lot of those sketches were saying. Let's take the fourth. Okay. The fourth, um, um, attack. It's two girls basically coming home off the bus. They had just gone to New York city to see, uh, the song remains the same Led Zeppelin movie. And they hadn't been out drinking and they're walking home and they, they, this guy approaches behind them. They turn and he says something and then takes out a gun and shoots them both. Again, these girls aren't in a car. They haven't been drinking. One of them, they both kind of had a very good look. They both sketched the same guy, except the hair part is on one side and the other one has the hair part on the other side. They basically sketched the same guy. He's wearing a green army jacket. He happens to be um, right-handed originally. They say right-handed and uh, Berkowitz is right-handed. Well, the district attorney, the Queens DA, goes back and he re-interviews the woman and he's like, hey, quick question, like, this gun, if I'm taking a gun out of my pocket, like, which hand am I taking out? And she's like, oh, you're right. He's like, no, you're looking at me and saying it's my right, but that's actually my left, you know? And she's like, oh, then it's your left. And then she's like, so is this David Berkowitz, you know, curly hair? She's like, no, my guy had straight hair. Like, and he asks this of the two individuals, not one, but we're talking two women who were shot by the same assailant and they both pretty much sketched the same guy. So there's all these like weird inconsistencies. Um, you know, I, as a individual, you know, and I don't know if we have any law enforcement listening, but when you have the largest manhunt in New York city history, where tens of thousands of man hours are spent hunting down every single clue, no matter how small, every thread, how do you not take one hour and interview the actual sons of Sam, the guys who happen to live across the street from David Berkowitz, who also happen to be the literal sons of Sam, the same moniker that's used in the letter, the same, you know, there's one of the letters that says John Wheatie's John Wheat Carr. Maury had gone to the phone book and it read John Wheat Carr in the phone book. Now you could say this is David Berkowitz doing all this, but they never even interviewed these guys. Uh, they never did any work. And if they did, they would find out that they have long histories of drugs and, and that, you know, schizophrenia and, and just some very weird connections to the case. So that's just, a, that's just some of it. Well, when you talk law enforcement, then, then why is it that they didn't um, go further into it? Uh, it's, Chinatown. it's Chinatown. Jack, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's you. Okay, let me rephrase this. Um, 1975, New York City is on the verge of bankruptcy. Okay, Abe Beam, the mayor, gets called in. He's an accountant. He gets called in to please save New York City from bankruptcy. You have so New York City's teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. You have uh, over 12,000 arson fires, which are set up in the Bronx. Bronx is burning. You have garbage strikes where garbage is piled high. You have uh, police strikes where, you know, they're putting out pamphlets about Fear City saying uh, how, how, you know, the murder rate is so high. You have uh, four people getting killed a day murder rate. Um, and suddenly in the midst of all this, you have a serial killer who is stalking the kids um, and nobody is going out. Nobody's going to bars. Nobody's going to restaurants. Nobody's going to discos for 30.
18 months. Hmm, sound familiar? Empty streets. <laughs> so, and on, on top of it, and then on top of that, you have a blackout with millions and millions of dollars of damage. And then, and you're losing in the polls as Aid Beam was, losing to Ed Koch, and suddenly, like a godsend, there comes David Berkowitz, smiling as, as he's paraded through the crowd. Uh, he's a loner, 24-year-old postal worker, and he's smiling. He's a schlub, and he sits down, and you say, did you do it? And he says, yes, I did all of them, and a demon dog commanded me to kill. And he gives you a couple facts, and that's it. You know, case closed. He was the perfect guy. And, and the politicians needed him. The police needed him. They needed him to be guilty. They wanted to lock away and throw away the key. If it wasn't for Berkowitz, New York City might not have ne- ever survived. You know, uh, the nightmare was over. Uh, and, you know, he was the perfect patsy, if you will, not to sound too conspiratorial, but he was. Okay, so let's talk about these uh, sketches, first of all. Um, <laughs> well, well uh, the thing is, uh, there's a couple, I have a couple of points of view. One is, yeah, sure. um, w- when the um, blackout happened, when you talk about that in New York, yeah, one of the books I wrote, and why I'm on HLN, uh, is because of Rodney Alcala. Now, he killed sure. two girls in New York, and one of them was during the blackout. Yep. But initially, they, they lumped those girls in with the forty four caliber or Son of Sam murders. Mm-hmm. They had no idea it was someone different. He would look completely different. So my point is that when those two girls got off the bus and got shot by a straight-haired blonde man, maybe it wasn't the Son of Sam killing. Maybe it was someone else, because there were four killings a day, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at that, how do we know which ones you could attribute to mm-hmm. Son yep. of Sam and which ones you couldn't? Because like, there was a big variety. Well, ballistics. Yeah. Ballistics. Well, yeah, but there was it, a- the, the Rodney Alcala was the same. What do you mean? Well, he shot with the forty-four. Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, I think also from the location, um, you know, uh, that was a big thing. Uh, it was not very far. Queens, the Bronx, two girls. I mean, you're saying how do they, you know, they, they did ballistics on the forty-four bullet, you know, to, to put them all together. But, you know, this is just a very small part of a larger, larger issue. You know, you have the, um, you have the Moskowitz shooting. You know, you've got a guy, Tommy Zeno, saying that there's no way that this guy was that shooter. Uh, you know, that's quick. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit in the scene. Um, but, you know, once you start to get into uh, the letters, the letters, you know, numerous experts say that the letters couldn't have been written by the same individual. Um, the first letter and the second letter. Um, we get in a lot into, into our, um, into our, these individual issues in the podcast, searching for the sons of Sam, you know, cause we kind of wanted to, we didn't really want to get into the case as much as get into Maury Terry and this kind of guy who's about, you know, uh, this kind of cautionary tale of true crime, if you will. Josh, you know, um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the documentary um, was the way that it really told, you told the story through Maury Terry's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I was thinking a little bit about, you know, I'll Be Gone in the Dark and Michelle McNamara and sort of the obsessive personality. <clears throat> and for me, I'm a fiction writer. That really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I'd love to know more about like your decision to, to, take that point of view. Yeah. And, and I also love to know, where do you think, you know, he really kind of jumped the shark with his theory? Like, was there a point or a moment or was it more incremental? Uh, Two good questions. Number one, I had, when Maury Terry died, I had just come from working on the list case, the Long Island serial killer case. Mm -hmm. And there you, you, you didn't have a lot of people, um, I had been working with a lot of kind of web sleuthers, web sleuthers, and those people, a number of very obsessed people. And to the point where, like, I'm like, this is dangerous. So where Michelle McNamara, you know, I think it was kind of like she was the dogged journalist uh, who was right. I kind of wanted to flip that on its head and be like, look, this true crime thing, like, 
let's be careful about going down the rabbit hole. You know, mm-hmm. you could get lost in it. Like it is a dark mm-hmm. place, you know, because I'd seen all these people who were lost in the list case. Um, and, and I knew Maury and that was one of the reasons that Maury, you know, ended up not being able to convince the world is because he was too obsessive and, and he sold his soul to the devil and he appeared on Geraldo too many times. He was so invested in getting his point across that, you know, he did it in the worst way possible. He, he lost all credibility, which becomes this weird, you know, kind of Shakespearean tragedy. I mean, there's a point in which the Berkowitz is writing him a letter saying, Maury, no matter how much evidence you have, nobody will ever believe you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got the serial killer telling this <laughs> to the journalist, you know, and it's like, he's the voice of reason. And this was true, you know. Um, and, and, and it just becomes incredible. It, you know, and look, I've been doing true crime for, for a long time. And I've seen this rise of true crime. And I've seen all these people start to go all down these rabbit holes with the advent of the internet, you know, where they wouldn't have before, you know, suddenly I'm, I get, I get, you know, DMS on my Twitter, like, hello, Mr. Zeman. I have been looking at this case for 25 years, you know, and, <laughs> you know, I would like to bring up nine different points. Please refer to page, you know, 26 of my dissertation. And I'm like, bro, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, not to disparage, you know, because I am just like that, of course, you know, I, to be honest, I also did it as a cautionary tale for me as a mm-hmm. filmmaker. You know, I spent, I spent six years going down rabbit holes of snuff parties and stuff on Lisk, you know, the Long Island serial killer, like that, and, you know, hanging out with sex workers and, 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 and looking at sex workers who've been killed across the country, you know, like that's dark stuff, you know? Um, so I did it as a way to like, help myself not to go so far down the rabbit hole, you know, dare, you know, what do they say? Look into the abyss, dust the, the abyss looks into you. You know, yeah. it's, that's totally true. The second question, where did Maury jump the shark on, well, on the satanic stuff, you know, mm-hmm. Maury couldn't, towards the end of his life, he was able to figure it out, but Maury was putting, as this detective says, too much stock in, the idea of an organized network. And mm-hmm. I like to say like, he was thinking that it was all organized rather than it's like, no, the satanic stuff, it's just a cover. It's a, it's a moral justification for people who like to do bad things and find each other in the darkness. And, uh, it, you know, it, go ahead. Yeah, well, I would just say you have, I, I, I'm not going to quote it, properly but you say something about sort of uh you know not being willing to sort of accept the chaos of the whole thing you know mm-hmm. i think there's something in the the narration at the end of the, the film that and that seemed to sort of ring true like you know we want to organize all these all this behavior and make it make sense but kind of it, it doesn't really hold up to that yeah yeah i mean that's the nature of conspiracy right conspiracy mm-hmm. theories conspiracy theories allow us to make sense out of random chaos you know, but chaos is because chaos is really scary. I mean, that's why the Joker is so fucking terrifying. You know, right. he's like, I'm an agent. That's because and that that ironically gets back to the Manson of it all. Right. You know, is are is Manson just driving around and saying, OK, we're going to go creepy crawly on some random person's house. Like that could be your house um, right. or, or is it organized? You know, and so I think I think this whole idea of making things organized uh, or, or not random or a pattern allows us to kind of take control over things that we fear. Um, it, it is, it is interesting though, because some people really fear organized satanic networks, you know? Um, so I think that that was an important thing. You know, Maury towards the end of it, Maury was like, Oh, you know, he, he kind of realized it was all just cover for sex, drugs and rock and roll. But if you can, if, if you've got like a bunch of willing foot soldiers and you say, no, Satan compels you and hell, they'll do it for free. That's even better. Like if you run a, cr- a criminal organization and you don't have to pay anybody to do all this stuff, then that's even better. 
Yeah, I was. That's yeah, what I do. I've been watching a, the uh, Hue into the Storm documentary, and I think yeah. there's not. <laughs> there's some similarities here. That desire to see the sort of even if it's it, your perception of it is sort of um, you know this ordered you know whether it's order for good or order for evil, but people want that sort of that thing right. that order, and it's uh, it, it can be dangerous, obviously. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing. Like people were like. People were like, is, would Maury be a QAnoner in this day and age? And I was mm-hmm. like, you know, he, at some point, like, it, it may have been. And we're obviously going through a new satanic panic now, you know, when, like, little Nas breaks out a shoe that's got a little blood in it and people yeah. flip out, you know. <laughs> fucking dumb. I mean, you know, it's a marketing ploy. Jesus, right. people. You know, <laughs> keep your head. Uh, but, you know, but... And so, like, would he? Yeah, you know, maybe he would have, you know, and that's the point. Like, the point is his original investigation was great. And I highly recommend everybody to read The Ultimate Evil because the first half is brilliant. And and by the way, like, there's a lot of other information. Like, you had, like, for example, you had all these cops in Minot, North Dakota, who interviewed all of John Carr's friends. And they're like, oh, yeah, John Carr's you know, he's crazy. He's going back and forth to New York City. He's writing the Son of Sam symbol before it all, ha- before it all uh, went down. Like, you know, there's all these different things. You have the Queens District Attorney, John Santucci. Like, a Queens DA, a district attorney is not going to reopen up the Son of Sam case, which is a crazy political hot potato. He's not going to reopen up that case unless there is fairly good evidence. And and I've spoken to investigators um, who have now retired who are like, oh, yeah, you know, like the police changed police reports. Like they did a lot of a lot of stuff, you know, and, and, and maybe the other thing is, you know, all these people were saying to me like, well, Josh, what makes you think, you know, we've been trying to get the story out there for years. What makes you think people might believe believe us now? And I was like, you know what it is? It's it's the way we look at law enforcement. <laughs> You know, with with TV and with everything that's going on nowadays, you're going to be like, oh, I wouldn't put it past those guys in 1970. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's happening a lot. Right. I think that's with every single case now it's being overanalyzed. Um, It doesn't it doesn't matter what it is. And it's a negative look at the policing or the detectives involved. Right. It's sort of it's kind of a given nowadays. Right. I, I mean, look at Long Island. Look at the case, and you guys are all familiar with Long Island. You had the DA, the district attorney, brought up on charges. Like, that doesn't happen. You know, like, that is not, you know, you have the police chief going to jail. I mean, nowadays it, it has flipped around almost too much, you know, yeah. but it has flipped around. Yeah, because then the, the, the onus is now on the cops to prove their job. Um, yeah. It's, 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 so everything's thought of in the negative right away yes it was done wrong yeah so i'm going to correct it this armchair detective yeah that's the problem yeah that's that's a problem that we're seeing a lot yeah someone who's never even been to new york is uh, (laughs) 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 gonna solve the case Uh, so what is it you've learned from this whole thing what do you think that you took away from doing this like what's the key item that that came out of it for you you know uh, you can have the best evidence in the world and people still won't believe it. It's, you know, I, it, it, I, I hate to say it, but like people are, are going to believe what they want to believe about crime, about life. You know, I could show you that there's no basement in, in you know, Pongo Pizza, but if you believe that something <laughs> went down there, you know, you're still going to be like, nope, you know, it's going down. So, People will believe what they want to believe. And so that was one. And maybe, you know, be careful going down this rabbit hole, you know, because here's a classic example of a guy who, who, you know, went down this rabbit hole. Like, like we go down the internet rabbit hole and you, you come out four hours later and you're like, oh shit, I forgot to make the kids dinner, you know. Here's a guy who did it for 40 years. Forgot I had kids. <laughs> Forgot I had kids. 
forgot to get married and have kids. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the one of the parts that I think about is the part where it's um, uh, Maury interviewing uh, Berkowitz. Now, it was not looked upon too well as it was considered as him being kind of leading and not really, and Berkowitz giving him just what he wanted to hear. Sure. Uh, do do you have the same opinion, or do you think there's more to it? I think there's more to it. I mean, there's a couple things, and and I I battled with my producers on that a little bit more because, you know, you've been in these situations before. You're an interviewer. You know, what if you you know what if you get an incredibly important interviewee, right? You know, you happen to get, uh, you know. You know, I, I, I don't know, you know, the guy who shot JFK, you know, you get Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, and he's just giving you one line answers. You know, are you going to stop the interview and say, forget it, this is shit? Or are you just going to keep going, you know, no matter what? And I, so I think there's a little bit of that there. Yes, Maury had his own agenda. Yes, he was trying to get what he was trying to get because people had called him a crackpot. But I think he also knew David wasn't going to give him what he wanted. He also knew that just David is not a big, you know, chatty Kathy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, but you also have to listen to these things in their totality. Like before the cameras were rolling, he's like, you know, Maury goes like, so were you guys trying to bring about the end of the world? And he's like, Oh yeah, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We wanted, you know, we were waiting for the beast, you know, six, six, six. And we thought like, if we could do all this chaos, like we could bring this in there. I mean, you know, he's chatty about that. Um, you know, but, I'll tell you, it's interesting. All these people are like, how could Berkowitz do this? He, there's no, I knew the guy. He wasn't a mastermind. And it's like, yeah, I agree. Like, he wasn't a mastermind. He was a patsy. And a patsy is going to feel guilty. And he's not going to say anything. He's not going to elaborate. He feels bad about what he did. You know? He's like a kid. You know? It's like, what did you do? You know? He's not going to be like, well, first I did this. He's just going to be like, nothing. I didn't do anything. You know? It's hard, hard if that makes sense, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you should have talked to him more about his sex life or something. <laughs> Throw him I off. Well, to be honest with you, I think sex was a big part of it. I well, think see, there you go. He should have I... <laughs> dived right in there and said, well, you know, talk about that and kind of break the ice somewhat. It seemed, it seemed rather stiff. Yeah, well, there was some icebreakers. Like, they joked around how Berkowitz looked like Richard Dreyfus and things like that. Like, they, they, they did do that. But, you know, your, your mention about sex is pretty interesting because I think Berkowitz wasn't having a lot of sex. And I think that these neighbors, you know, were, like, you know, promising Burke that, like, you know, he was finally going to get laid. And I think that they were, like, dangling, dangling sex in front of him. It, it was a little bit like, you know, give it to Mikey. Mikey will do anything. You know, Mikey likes it. Like, it's that kind of neighborhood thing. You know that's what I'm a, saying? That's a very I aged that was commercial. Going on uh, <laughs> young people won't know that commercial. That's funny. <laughs> Get it to Mikey. Um, okay, so now uh, Dr. Scott Vaughn. Do you know him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're really going to go here? Well, okay. Sure. Um, okay, yeah, we no, don't have to. I just thought... No, 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 let's do it. Well, okay. So, so now his opinion, of course, that is that um, he said Berkowitz said it was all um, he was just lying, mm -hmm. made it all up. Just didn't. was that when Scott interviewed Berkowitz? Yeah, and, and he wrote that book. You know, I think it was fourteen or something like that. Something. Like I don't that. think he interviewed him, did he? Yeah, according to him, he did. Um, okay. In his notes here, he spent time with him in prison uh, over a five-month period. I think Scott Bond did like a like commented on another project that I was involved in. I was like, this guy. Yeah, because he does psychology today. I, I don't know him very well. I, I've met him a few times, and 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 uh, he's never been on the show for uh -huh. me. But I did record another person that does interviews um, for the radio station that interviewed him. So uh -huh. anyway, so I just thought, yeah, yeah, keep going. So I just wanted to throw that out there. So mm -hmm. how do we know? Um, what's true when it comes to Berkowitz, when he comes along and he says, no, I just made that all up. I just told him what he wanted to hear. Uh, uh, which is what, which is basically how it goes in um, Mindhunter. Right. Right. So basically, for example, in Mindhunter, Dave Berkowitz says I lied. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, if he's lying, 
you know, and it says it wasn't really about a demon dog. I mean, a demon dog, really? Really? You know, a demon dog made me kill. Like, it's the worst excuse in the world. And, like, when you go in and look at it now, it's, it's just effing ridiculous. Um, by the way, uh, he had been deemed crazy twice and then um, not fit to stand trial. And then uh, the mayor finally found somebody who would say he was okay to stand trial. So there's a, just a shit ton of shenanigans that are going on polit- politically as well. Um, you know, Berkowitz said he made it all up. Um, and then he admitted to uh, doing a number of crimes. And he said other people did other ones. Also, like, why would you admit to some and not the other? No, no, I just thought it was interesting. Why yeah, would you do that? It is. Um, okay, here he's Scott Bond. I recently spent five enlightening hours with the man whose pseudonym Son of Sam has become synonymous with evil. Okay, five hours. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you know, uh, were there any more shootings under the same M.O. after Berkowitz was caught? And if there weren't, is there some other reason why there, that may have uh, been the case? Uh, so basically, uh, from what Maury finds out, is that there's a big, you know, they were not just all random shootings. They were far from random. Two of them were actually mob contract for higher hits. Um, the first one um, and the, f- uh, the fifth one. Um, so two of them were murder for higher hits, apparently. Uh, some were just random, and then one was theoretically for a snuff film. Um, it's an interesting idea. Um, that's, by the way, the same idea in, like, the ABC murders. It's like you commit four murders to hide, hide the one murder that, like, has a real thing to it. Um, so that there were some mob hits and some were, you know, they were trying to drive down the real estate prices, you know, the discos. Uh, that was, that's another kind of theory that uh, one of the Yonkers police officers finds out. Um, so, you know, there's just a whole bunch of reasons for the crimes. Um, now, why did they not continue? It's, it's not like there's anybody compelling them to kill. Like they decided to kill specifically that because they had, you know, financial motive and were trying to basically create chaos. Um, if you're looking for like, did the murder stop? Maury says that they didn't stop, that there were eight other murders Two of them, including the guys, you know, you had John Carr dies, weird, mysterious. You have Michael Carr dying. You have Roy Radin dying. Like there were a lot of people who were dying in and around that time related to the case. Interesting. Hmm. Really interesting case. So now you're doing a podcast about it. So what, what, what are yeah. people going to get from the podcast? Uh, le- level two deep dive. Uh, we go into some of that very specific evidence. Um, I had recorded some of my first meetings with Maury Terry. Um, and basically we go further into the idea that, um, there was a mob connection to some of these. I mean, it was, again, the satanic stuff was a cover, you know, it was a smokescreen, uh, for the real reasons. And the real reasons were sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, the bunch of guys who got together, you know, and who wanted to create some chaos and make some money at the same time. Sounds good. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, what else is there for? Come on, man. <laughs> <It's interesting. laughs> no the body count. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it, it, there's no problem. So, okay. So, and now where do people get the, the podcast and, and yeah. how do they get a hold of you? Or do you want them getting a hold of you? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, searching, uh, so the podcast is called Searching for the Sons of Sam. Four episodes, uh, a real deep, deeper dive into the case where we get in, into some like hardcore stuff. Um, and I'm totally around on Twitter, you know, in, uh, Instagram, uh, at J O S H Z E M A N. Um, I'm actually pretty good about, you know, getting back and forth and we've been contacting, we've been getting some really great interesting people like, oh, I knew Michael Carr, I knew John Carr, you know, in Scientology, like all these just fascinating things that are coming out of the woodwork now. Hmm. Well, we'll have that on our website as well, you know. Yeah. You've got to be yeah. careful. Scientology, they're going to come after you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'll have Tom Cruise. <laughs> 
They were wor- so the idea was that they were worried that Maury was going to try and link the Son of Sam case to Scientology because Michael Carr had been a Scientologist for a while before joining the process. Um, and so Maury had gotten some threatening emails from Scientology that I found in his files that were very interesting. Uh, but nothing ever happened with that. You know, he did end up linking it to the process church, but I think that was, again, a little bit misguided, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in terms of like labeling it to one group. I mean, that's like saying, you know, one follower of, of, of this religion is somehow representative of the whole thing uh, where that actually just isn't the case. Whatever happened to them, like the process church and things, is that still going? Um, they've turned into another group, uh, Best Friends Animal Society. Um, <laughs> you know, they, uh, from what I hear, they're fine. You know, I, I, I really don't think, I think that they were, you know, just a bunch of crazy theatrical hippies, you yeah. know. Um, there's some interesting interviews, however, on this podcast about that. Um, the occult community in New York City in the 70s, you know, when the, when the process came in, everybody thought that they were really weird. Um, but, but were they connected to this? I don't really think so, you know, to be honest. Like, was there one guy, you know, an offshoot person? Like, one, you know, bad apple? Yeah, you know, would, could he have been connected? Sure, but that doesn't make the whole group connected, you know. And your mention of Charles Manson in there, what, was, what do you think the connection there is? Or is there? I mean, there's some interesting connections, you know. I, there's a lot of fun games to play, you know. Uh, you know, the, man, uh, the Manson, the family, you know, Son of Sam, the children, you know. Um, you know, yes, they were both connected. They both had connections to, to the group, uh, the process, you know. Again, I think, you know, certain types of people gravitate towards each other. You know, whether it's the 60s or whether it's the 70s, you know, and if if I, you know, if I like to play cult leader, you know, and I'm going to gravitate towards a couple interesting people, you know, especially like a chaos cult leader type of dude. Um, so there, there's there's some connections. Does that mean that there's one Hydra like group influencing both Charles Manson and the son of Sam? Uh, I kind of doubt it although it makes for great fiction. Wasn't it Hillary Clinton? Yeah. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> exactly. she like, make a phone call? And then... Of course, of course, of course. Oh, yeah, boy. Mind, mind control yeah. and all that. You know, you know it's, so. all, it's always 60-year-old women who are the pedophiles. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's cooking her babies and talking exactly. on speakerphone, and she just MK Ultra and says the word, and they're out shooting. Exactly. <laughs> you know? well, that's how I see it. You know? Fucking crazy. It's, it's all that way. <laughs> anyway. Well, so how was this? Did, did the pandemic get in the way of you doing finishing this film? Oh yeah, we were. I, I had we had done like half halfway, and then the pandemic hit, and everybody was like, "Okay, you know, sorry, let's shut it down." Um, I unfortunately did not. T- was hoping to get some wonderful interviewees, guys like Mitch Horowitz, who are like, who could basically add some context in, into the Satanic Panic section, right? Because I think we didn't, it's very nuanced, you know, in the whole satanic panic thing. Did Maury contribute to satanic panic? Yes, I think he did. Did he do it because he really believed in full networks? Not really. He was more trying to promote his story, but like he bought, he fed into what they were doing and they fed into what he was doing and it became an echo chamber. Um, and also, that doesn't mean like, like, like not every satanic crime is just fully satanic panic. I mean, if you if you do something because you believe in the devil, then, you know, then that's real, you know, whether it's whether it's really about that or not. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So so I wish we had done that. Um, but um, a friend mm-hmm. of mine tweeted the other day. She's like, I'd like all these people, everybody out there to know that like this team did 75% of this show in their living rooms. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally well, true. Yeah, it makes things tough, right? Uh, Mitch Horowitz, he's a nice guy. He's, uh, he's, oh, he's great. He's, he's great. Well, well, yeah, yeah. well involved in that, that area. Yeah, know? we, you know, and again, like, it's hard when you have all these. So I approached it like this. I'm a skeptic, right? Yeah. Complete skeptic. 
But what happens when a skeptic finds one case that actually has some kind of truth behind it? And, and that's how I approached it. Like, I don't believe in satanic, anything satanic, you know, Ricky Casa, you know, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, like it couldn't be more stupid, all that stuff. Like, that's not real. You know, it's not really Satan. It's a bunch of kids or it's, you know, that or, or Harry Potter, like totally stupid. But as a skeptic, this son of Sam case and what went on is far different from anything else I've ever seen. And to me, that was interesting. And I said, okay, let, let's go down that road because this challenges my perceptions. You know, was there really a group of Satanists in Untermeyer Park? Well, there were a group of dudes meeting in Untermeyer Park under the guise of Satan. Were they really Satanists? Maybe there was like one or two, you know, but the rest were there for the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know? So I was kind of interested in kind of building up the Satan satanism thing and then pulling it apart when i when i had peter gilmore you know the church of satan magus he said yeah that, uh, they were just christians with bad behavior <laughs> <laughs> there's no such thing as a satanist in that way yeah Those i mean that, you know so <laughs> and look at look at how you know look at how anton LeBay comes in and looks at looks at it from his end yeah you know, you know like Satanists are completely scapegoated, you know, throughout history. Like we wouldn't have Satanists if we didn't have scapegoating, you know, on the Christian side. So you can understand why they'd be very like fearful. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely wanted to look into this case of Satanism, if you will, or satanic crimes, because it, it just, it just felt different from anything else I'd ever seen in that milieu. And I think that challenges a lot of people. You know, oh, whether it's yeah. whether it's the fundamental like when this show came out, like the Satanists were angry at me and the fundamentalists were mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody was mad at me. Well, we'll give out we'll give out your phone number. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing something right. Yeah. I think yeah. so, right? You know, yeah. making everybody like question what's going on. Yeah. Well, I think that's yeah. the point. You know, if you make a lot of people if you make everyone happy, there's something wrong. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, mm -hmm. That's the way I live. Um, well, it's been a really, really interesting conversation, and we're glad you came on. And, and like I said, we'll have everything up to uh, help promote the um, podcast, the podcast. And yeah, the yeah. show as well, which I'm sure is doing well on Netflix. Sons yeah. of Sam, and uh, yeah. boy, we learned a lot. Um, what did we learn? Uh, Josh likes to have sex with Satanists. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And, and I was really, I did the whole thing just to try and, and woo some Satanists. That's kind of, <laughs> and that's important. No, it, no, it is. It is. You've got to have your priorities. Is. You know, <laughs> even naughty girls need love too, right? Hell, hell yeah. Coming from this naughty girl, yes. Yes. <laughs> well, Josh Lehman, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Take care, guys. Thanks, Josh. Bye. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.